Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is Professor Ingrid Willard, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Economic and Management Sciences at Stellenbosch University, and notably the first woman to hold this position. Welcome to the show, Prof Willard. Thanks for inviting me. Prof Willard, to start with, as Dean of the Faculty of Economic and Management Sciences at Stellenbosch University, can you tell us more about some of the responsibilities that come with holding this role as well as some insight into the faculty itself? Mm, thank you. So the way the university is arranged is we have, a, we have about 150 departments across the whole university, and then we try and group those into thematic areas. So, for example, there'll be a faculty of health sciences, a faculty of engineering, faculty of science, and, and so on. So I'm the dean of the faculty of economic and management sciences, so that means that I take responsibility for the more business-oriented subjects, so accountancy, business management, um, economics, the business school. So in the faculty, we have about 9,000 students, um, which is an enormous number. It means we're bigger than universities such as Rhodes University or, or Fort Hare. And a um, couple of companies, too. Well, that's right. No, exactly. So 9,000 students and 350 staff. So you can sort of think of me as, as being that intermediate layer of management. I sit between the senior executive and I sit... Um, above the, the heads of departments. So the deans have to joke that we're, we're kind of the ham in the sandwich and we get squeezed from, um, you know, from, from below and above. But um, in reality, we, you know, we play quite an important role in terms of communicating up and down um, such that the, the vision that the senior leadership uh, sets is communicated downwards, but then the, the, the reality of, of what it is to be in the classroom and, on, and, and as a researcher gets communicated upwards. I think that's a wonderful insight, the ham and the sandwich. I haven't heard that expression before. <laughs> and in your role as, as dean, what would you say is your greatest challenge? So I think, you know, for me personally, it's, it's been quite difficult to, to step into a completely new role. I'm new to Stellenbosch University. I'm the first female dean. Um, I think it's been, it's been a, an interesting time of, of me trying to understand a, a new culture, a very polite and very kind culture. In terms of, of the challenges that we're facing as a, as a faculty, I think the biggest challenge that we're facing is that there, there are now an increasing number of new entrants into the, into the educational market. So we're seeing a lot of private providers coming in and saying, actually, you can, you can do a BCom or a, or a, or a diploma in, in accountancy through a private provider. You don't necessarily need to go to an old traditional residential university. And so we're, we're really fighting for, for, our, for our space in terms of saying, well, actually, what we offer is something that's much broader than just this is what you need in order to pass your exams. So we think that the residential universities offer an incredible experience to students in terms of their, their overall development. It's not just about, about the, the content. It's not just about what's in the exam. But it's about this very rich experience of meeting other students, of participating in, in activities outside of the lecture theater. Um, but, you know, at the same time, there's an there's a, there's a economic argument here. It's, it's, it is expensive to, to send your kids to, to, um, to university as opposed to allowing them to study online or, um, you know, or at, uh, at, at, a, 
at a, a new type of college. And so I think that's that's the, 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 the that's going to be the big thing that we need to address during my five-year term, is how do we continue to hold that space. Yes, I'm sure there'll be significant competition, but also opportunity in that on, on being able to open other avenues supported by the school. That's right. That's exactly right. So, you know, so we, we are moving into the online space. We are thinking about are there modalities in which we can, we can enrich the offering. And so it does keep us on our toes. Um, it, it, it means we can't just stay the way we've always been. And so my job in all of this is, is, to, is to motivate the staff to make sure that they, that they continue to, to hold the vision um, and, and that they remain motivated and engaged. Because at the end of the day, the, you know, the, the, the strength of the university is in the people that, that, that work here and, um, and we need to ensure that, that they understand their purpose and that they feel valued. And looking at that parallel dynamic of not just students coming in to receive an education in a particular subject matter, but having a broader, more holistic development, how do you see the responsibilities of universities towards shaping the thinking of students? Because obviously they're going to be the country and the continent's future players. No, exactly. So one of the things that I always say to the students at the at the start of the year, so sort of the the new first years coming in who bright eyed and, and and a little dazzled by all of this, I say to them, look around this room and and you will see people here that will go on to be the captains of industry, directors generals, you know, central bankers. Um, this is this is your network and, and just think about how exciting that is, that you are going to walk this journey the next three, four, five years together with these people that are, are your network um, and that will go on to be the leaders both in the, the private sector and the public sector in this country. So, and I think so. The, the, the fact that we, we ask the students to take some ownership there and to think about the importance of, of, of this, this university journey, um, I think is, 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 uh, is an amazing thing. Um, but then from our side, we, we have a lot of responsibility to not just ensure that they, they get some content knowledge, but to ensure that they, they learn some of the attributes that they need in order to, to go out into the marketplace, especially if you think about how the world of work is, is completely changing. So we're, 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 not, we're no longer preparing students for, for a lifetime of being in you know, one company for the next 40 years. Instead, we're thinking about, we're, we're trying to instill in them the ability to be creative, be entrepreneurial, self-manage. Um, engage and think about lifelong learning such that they really can be adaptable and, um, and able to function in a in labor in market that we don't really even understand. Um, and so I think that's the exciting part, is thinking about those much broader attributes of you know, intercultural competency, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, teamwork. Absolutely. I think our, our leadership attributes are, are certainly going to change if we, we're looking towards a, a sort of a, a 2030 mark. And we honestly, I don't think we know what that trajectory is. We don't. And, 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 and I think it's, I'm not even sure that it's that helpful to constantly be, be talking about, you know, can we, can we try and prepare young people for the fourth industrial revolution? We're in this revolution. This is not something that is going to suddenly happen at some point in the future. We're already in a, in a state of, of, of quick and rapid change, and, and we, it, it, we can't predict exactly what those jobs are going to look like. What we can do instead is say, can we prepare people such that students, such that they're able to 
to adapt and learn and um, and take on and take on new responsibilities as they as they're created. I mentioned in the introduction that you're the first woman to hold the position of dean in this faculty. How do you see that as a as a change and 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 potentially as a challenge? So, on the one hand, I I, I tend to to. to to be a little uncomfortable with this idea of, of women in leadership and and this idea that you know do women have a very different different style, um, but I, I think I've increasingly come to realise that there are some what more what one might think of as female attributes. So a, a more inclu- a, quite, I have a very inclusive style. I I, um, I listen quite carefully. I encourage people to 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 voice their their views. So I, I do think I, I I do think I brought something slightly different into the space. Um, at the same time, it, it it is challenging to be a woman in this space. Um, I, so not only am I a woman, but I'm English speaking, um, and and I come from a you know and I, and I come from outside. And so I think there it has taken a little bit of time for people to sort of get a sense of of, of just where you know how how are they how how do they perceive me, uh, and can we work together. The cultural dynamic is always so interesting. You've you've got a job, and the you know the outputs are generally always going to be the same. But the environment is incredibly important too. Now, some of your research interests centre on the measurement of poverty, inequality, unemployment, social protection, and fiscal policy. The first three areas that I spoke about are, are frequently mentioned as South Africa's most pressing challenges. So given that poverty, inequality and unemployment are, are really important elements in our, in our society, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the significant collaborations or research projects you've been working on to address these areas? So I was incredibly fortunate that I was I just happened to be in the right place at the right time in, in 1994 when I had the opportunity to work on, on South Africa's very first living standards survey that included households from, uh, from across South Africa. So in 1994, we, 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 we ran a big survey um, at Seldrew in conjunction with the World Bank, and we really got a picture of, of what living standards looked like in 1994. And, um, and ever since then, I've been, I've, I've been in the world of, of doing ongoing data collection, trying to, trying to map, map change. And we have seen enormous changes in South Africa. Um, if, you, if you look at, especially at the, the more what we, we refer to as the non-income measures, so there's been, there've been tremendous strides in terms of rolling out um, free water, um, increasing access to, to electricity. We've seen massive increases in, in, in average uh, education, educational attainment, increased access to healthcare, um, increased life expectancy. So we, we have certainly seen progress in South Africa in, in many dimensions. But despite all of that, we, we have made no progress in terms of reducing inequality. And so um, a lot of my, my more recent work has been looking particularly at trying to understand that. Why is it that the inequality that we saw in, in 1994 has simply perpetuated itself over, these, over the last 25 years? Um, and, and a big part of that story turns out to be a labor market story and the fact that, that we simply, this, this economy has not created enough jobs and enough opportunities for people. Um, so I've, I've had an incredibly 
interesting time. I was, I was at the writing of the white paper on the Reconstruction and Development Program back in 1994. I was involved in, um, in the, the, the growth strategy called ASGISA, Accelerated Shared Growth Initiative. I was, um, I've, I've advised the National Planning Commission. So I've, I've, had, an, I've had an incredibly rich career of, of being able to, to, to participate in a great many pro, uh, processes. But I think, you know, um, at the same time, looking back and saying, well, how much of this is actually, has actually worked? Um, and I do think we're, we're at, a, at a moment in South Africa now where we're having to say, well, okay, now, now we really do need to deliver. You know, we frequently hear about the unemployment statistics and they, they're always shocking. But as you said, our biggest impediment on the inequality issue is about, is about the labor market. Have you got any ideas on, during the work that you've done, on what we can do to improve in that space? So, so the, I mean, this economy has, has created some jobs. It's more about the, the, the distribution of those jobs that has been so problematic. So, for example, we, post-1994, we saw many, many women entering the labor market for the first time. There was, there was clearly tremendous pent-up demand, um, and we saw a flood of women entering the labor market, which is an incredibly positive thing. But a, a lot of that labor market entry didn't then translate into, into employment for women. So that we, we, we now have, have, if you look at the, the broader definition of unemployment, about 41% of women in the labor market are actually not able to find work. And, and that, that, um, it's a story both about women, it's a story about, about, about young people, and we, we do need, we need active interventions from the state in order to try and address those issues. It's, we can't just sit, sit back and say growth, you know, what we need is economic growth and economic growth will deliver. We, we really do need to see a very active state in terms of, 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 of promoting um, both public employment programs but also of, of trying to, to, to in, improve the, the matching. So ensuring that young people that do, and, and women that have skills are better able to to um, to, to find to find jobs in the labour market. And I, mean, the, I know that that's that's very high level. It doesn't necessarily. Um, it's not going to address all of the issues. Certainly, we need to we need to create a macro environment which is which is more business friendly, which is um, you know where, where there are, it's easier to create jobs, right? So if we if we get to the point where it, it is easier to set up a business, it's easier to invest in South Africa. That will also have positive spin-offs. So I, I don't think it's it's complete doom and gloom. I do think that there that there are things that that, that can happen, um, but it does require the public and the private sector to 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 be cooperating in a in, in a much better way, and for government departments themselves to be to be cooperating more extensively. We need the Department of Labor, the Treasury, the the Department of Trade and Industry, etc., to actually have a coherent job strategy. Um, yeah, it's an incredible responsibility that all players have to be on board because we all live in this country and we all have to participate and get the economy stimulated. That's right. And 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 so just to add to that, so something that I that I find deeply worrying is that we now have three million young people that we refer to as NEETs, not in education, employment, or training. So three million young people that are not studying and not working. 
that's three million kids that are sitting at home for all intents and purposes with with no clear strategy around what it is that they're going to do and that's a tremendous waste of human capital um, and 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 it, it's it, it's it's depressing for those young people it's a waste of resources from an economic perspective but also in terms of 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 being um, sort of rife for 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 social and of social instability it's a it's a huge concern and so I, I do think we not only do we need a job strategy but we need a very clear signal as to what the state plans to do in terms of of getting getting young people into education and into the labor market yes they have to be productive they have to be productive exactly you mentioned that 41 percent of women who are eligible for work are not actually working currently one thing that has always struck me as a distinct inequality is equal pay for work of equal value and the Institute of Race Relations and, and, and various other entities like the Grant Thorntons, McKinsey's frequently put out surveys looking at pay disparity. And I was always surprised to see that on average, women earn 23% less than their male counterparts. They tend to work in lower ranking positions and they're overrepresented, overrepresented in the unskilled labor, labor force. Um, a year or so ago, I was listening to, I think it was the BBC, and they were talking about women were starting to put out-of-office notices uh, you know, in, in December or in November and saying this was a, a point to reference that actually I've only paid to work for 80% of the time or 75% of the time. But if you look at this, I mean, being paid 23% less than men, in your opinion, what types of interventions do we need to, to institute to change things? So what's, in, what's really astonishing about, about that statistic is that this is not a story about women having, holding less education than men. So in South Africa, significantly more women finish high school than men, and 66% more women obtain an undergraduate degree than men. I mean, it's an astounding statistic that so many more women than men are, are achieving higher levels of education. And not only do they achieve higher levels of education, but, they, but the results are better. So there's, there's fascinating work that people like Nick Spall are doing, trying to, looking at these, at, these, at these gender differences. So here you've got this, this accentuated story, right? That, that this is a story about even after looking at the fact that, that, there is, um, that women have more education and, and perform better in, in education than, than men do, there's still a 23% pay gap. And so, uh, this is this is not this is not particularly my area of work. Um, and I think it's something where we we do need to understand much better what what exact how do you how do you unravel that story? So there seem to be there seem to be multiple things that are that are going on. The one is is what we call occupational crowding. So the fact that that women um, are more are, are overrepresented in certain professions, particularly the caring professions. So that women are more likely to be um, to be nurses. They're more likely to be um, caregivers. You know, looking after um, 
ill people, they're more likely to be working in early childhood development, etc. So we we do think that there. So some of the story is about about the occupations that that are perceived and, and um, as as being more likely to be filled by 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 professions that are more likely to be filled by women. So that's part of that's part of the story is is a is a is an occupational occupational crowding story. Part of the story seems to be around um, networks. So that the fact that that men are more likely to have to have social networks, which help them get into jobs, but then also help them perhaps perform well, get get promotions within within that workplace. Um, and some of it, of course, is a is a pure gender discrimination story. We we know that that. There are certainly cases where where men and women are, are paid differently for equal work, and I think in a way that's that's the, that's the part of the puzzle that's that's the easiest to try and tackle. So what you see, for example, in the public sector, is um, is a very clear, is is a great deal of transparency around around pay what, what around pay scales. So if you have if you have um, if if that was carried over into the private sector, where firms were were required to report on on the earnings of men and women by occupational category, um, experience, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That that drives then first of all it uh, it, it, it drives activism, and that uh, it then gives you something concrete to work with. Um, but it also just I think highlights for the firm itself. The, the, the need to to go back and and try and understand what exactly is going on, and so I think you know the Commission for Employment Equity, the Employment Conditions Commission, both of those um, statutory bodies now do require firms to to report and to try and give some kind of explanation. And I think I think that will start to have to have effects, but it's a it's a long time coming. And I think one of the other challenges in that is that if you come into a position and you accept a salary at, at whatever grade you're, you're being offered, that you will always end up being at a low base when you move up to the next position because invariably you'll be asked for your payslip from the previous role. So if you don't... So perpetuate. Yes. Yeah. You don't get it right at the beginning, at the onset. And there's a literature on the fact that, that women don't negotiate. Um, and so, so women are much more likely when they receive a job offer to accept it at face value. Um, so again, it's a, it's a cultural norm that one needs to one needs to challenge, and uh, you know we need to we need to ensure that women understand that this is not how men behave under these circumstances. Men will will invariably go back and negotiate harder. And as you say, if you don't do that at, at the get go with your very first position, um, then you will always be at a disadvantage. Lots of thought to to ponder there on opportunities and and learnings to to take out. Today, we're talking to Professor Ingrid Willard, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Economic and Management Sciences at Stellenbosch University. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof Willard, we are rapidly approaching August when South Africa celebrates Women's Month, which marks the years that women have struggled and reflects on the progress which women have achieved. In your opinion, which areas do you think we need to build on the most to benefit women in the future? So in South Africa, we certainly have one of the most progressive constitutions in the world, and, and that obviously then sets a, 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 an incredibly important benchmark for how we believe society should function. But despite 
a very progressive constitution and a raft of legislation, policies, program interventions intended to support women's economic empowerment. We continue to see gender gaps in a range of areas, and we've spoken about some of those. We've spoken about um, gaps in access to the labor market, gaps in, in terms of, of what women earn if they do succeed in getting jobs. Um, one can think about the double burden that women, um, women experience through working a second shift in terms of doing much more unpaid labor than, than men do. And so I, I think we, 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 we are now at the point where we have excellent frameworks and policies that, that, that need to guide us, but what we need is a, is a shift in thinking. And so we, 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 do need, we do need activist women to, to now to, to go out and say, well, actually, how do we, how do we make this real? How do we ensure that, um, that it is the case that, 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 that women know what it is that they, that they are entitled to and, 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 and really make use of, the, of, of what are right? We've also seen tremendous strides in terms of, 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 of women's participation in, in the public sector. And for me, that's very interesting, that the public sector has managed to get many things right where the private sector has lagged. So, for example, in Parliament, we now see that almost half of, of the participants, half of the parliamentarians are women. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you look at in the private sector, and I saw a statistic the other day saying that out of the 40 top-ranked companies on the, on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, not one is, is led by a woman. So with, the, with Maria Ramos having, having retired from ABSA, we're now at the point where absolutely no women are in those leadership roles. And, and so that, that, that begs the question of, of how is it that the public sector has got this so right, yet the private sector is, is lagging in, in, in such a way. And it's not just about economic disadvantage. I think we've spoken a lot today about, about, mm. about the, the you know, women in the labor market and in the workplace. But there are many other avenues. If you think about, for example, the fact that one in five women experiences physical violence. This also speaks to, I would say, some of the affirmative action work that's mm-hmm. done within the public sector. So looking at the things was from an ANC point of view, that as a political party, they are, are very strict in terms of saying we are 50-50, 50 men, 50, 50 women. So I think by having them as a majority that potentially is why, in the, party, in the party structure, that's why we see good representation of, of women within the public, public space. But also, which you mentioned earlier, you said that the public sector have been very transparent in terms of their pay scales. So I think some of those factors are, are important um, and, and quotering. No one really likes to, to think about things from a quota point of view, but if women are not given the opportunity, how are they ever going to move ahead? That's right, and, and many countries in the world have, have done this. It's not as though we're, we're this outlier where we're trying to do something completely, um, you know, completely strange. But I, and I do think that so one has to acknowledge that, there, that if it doesn't happen organically, then perhaps there is a role for something, as you refer to it, as, a, as a, thinking about about quotas. Um, but there also needs to be buy-in, right? I mean, it, it doesn't also doesn't help that one simply legislates this, and then and then firms firms behave um, in a particular way because they they're now being forced to do so. I think I think there's a there is a, there's huge room for for companies to understand the value of diversity, diversity on their boards, diversity in uh, in and, you know in, in, in the workplace. And so I do think there's a, there's a mind shift that needs to happen. 
I think this is a topic we could talk about all day, but I am mindful of time. So moving towards more of a personal point of view, one question that I'd like to ask you is about your personal journey. Many of our guests have attained tremendous achievements in their lifetimes, and everybody has something that is a little unique in terms of of the factors that have driven them ahead. Some people speak about hard work, others talk about perseverance, Uh, one person spoke about fear. What, in your opinion, have been some of the key drivers to your success? So I think I should I should start by acknowledging my privilege. Um, you know, the, the the reality is that is that I grew up in under you know in apartheid South Africa. I had enormous um, benefit from having, for example, an excellent education paid for by the state. Um, I lived in in a secure, safe safe community, and and I think one one mustn't one mustn't negate that. Um, and so. I do think that I was, I, you know, I benefited both from 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 the advantages that I had as a as a white person under apartheid, but I and I then actually also benefited from from affirmative action post apartheid, and so I, I I I do reflect on that often, and I don't think, and that's not saying that that's something I need to, I need to, you know, apologise for, but it's something that I need to recognise, and so I I think it's it's important to stop and think a bit about. The fact that I, I, I did benefit, um, I was often, as I said earlier, I felt at, I think I was at the right place at the right time. I had enormous opportunities because I joined the public sector in 1994, and it was this it was tremendous ch- time of change and opportunity, and we were setting new agendas, and and that that created all sorts of spaces, and some of that was simply good fortune. Um, it was it, I, I did work hard. I I was very I was always open to accepting help from other people. But some of it was, was, was also good luck. Um, and I think, I think it's important to, to, that, one, that one keeps a handle on thinking about what, you know, what, why, why, why did I succeed? And, and some of it came from within. Some of, it, some of it was just sheer luck. Being at the right place at the right time. Timing, timing is everything. <laughs> Going back a little bit further in your life, can you tell us about some of the pivotal moments when you were growing up? Gosh, so I had some very strong women in my life. Um, I had a I had a, a, a Dutch grandmother on my on my father's side who was this incredibly feisty, unbelievable woman who had been born in 1900 um, and obviously went to school at a time when it wasn't the expectation that women would go to university. So she had gone to a school where you you. you Sort of the consumer, what they, what we now call consumer studies, so embroidery and cooking, etc. But she was adamant that she wanted to go to university, and so she taught herself Greek and Latin, um, and 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 learnt all the th- and taught herself all the things she needed in order to gain admissions to university. So she, in fact, went to university, and uh, you know, in, in, at a time when it was almost unheard of for women to do that. And for me, that was always, she was an incredible role model in that she, she also engaged in lifelong, lifelong learning. She, she learned seven languages that she taught herself. And she was, she was quirky and she was different. Um, and one of the things that I, that I learned from her is that we can't have it all. Life is, life is about trade-offs. We make choices about what it is we do at, at, any, at any time. Um, and so just a, a kind of silly example, she, she would always cook the same seven things 
So if it was Monday, you got spaghetti bolognese. If it was Tuesday, it was you know, chicken stew or whatever. If it was Sunday, you got bean soup. And she decides that life was too short to think about, think about anything as mundane as cooking. Now, for me, food is incredibly important, and that wouldn't be the decision I would take. But I always thought it was interesting that, that, that she, you know, she was so conscious and deliberate about thinking about how she, how she spent her time. It reminds me of yes. the, you know, Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. So it exactly was the black, <laughs> black turtlenecks and grey t-shirt. Exactly. Although I, I suspect that that has, you know, that has less of a, uh, um, of a painful outcome for, for their families than, than being served you know, spaghetti bolognese every Monday for, for your entire life. Um, but but at, at school as well, I had I had these incredible role models. Um, we had a we had an English teacher, Mary Johnson, and Mary was was politically active. But she she knew she knew that she was sailing too close to the wind if she actually spoke about politics in the you know 1980s school classroom. So instead, she channeled a lot of that energy into into conscientizing us about feminist issues. And so she had us reading Margaret Atwood and um, Jermaine Greer, and we would have these very robust discussions in class. And I think for me that was really formative, um, you know, in terms of, of having this person who sort of deliberately took time and, 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 and conveyed a particular message that was, that was quite challenging of, of, of the time. But you need those igniters who who stand out as outliers from the rest of the, let's say, the, the standard curve to show what, what is possible, that you, you can go, go beyond and, and realize your ambitions and dreams. Exactly. So when, when the, you know, the, and, and, there, and then you spoke earlier about pivotal moments. And so for me, a, a, a pivotal moment was one day in, in the same teacher's class, Ms. Ms. Johnson, Mrs. Johnson. And um, she, she turned to me at, quite bizarrely, and said, why don't you have maths anxiety? And I thought, what on earth is she talking about? I, I, my father was a mathematician. I grew up believing that I could do mathematics. And, but it was a sort of this challenge of, of saying, but do you not recognize that there are so many women around you that do experience this? Um, and so on the one hand, I took it as, is she saying that because I'm a, because I'm a woman, I ought, to, I ought to exhibit this behavior? Or is she actually just challenging me to, to think about the fact that just because I have not experienced this, it, it, um, I, I'm, I'm blind to it in, in my cohort. And, and so it, it, it is interesting when somebody takes it. It's almost they're honoring you by, by, by taking the time to, to point something out to you. And I do think these, there, are some, there are these moments where we, on reflection, you go, you go back and you say, ah, oh, that was actually an important moment for me. And good teachers are so crucial. Exactly. Now, lastly, as we close out our conversation today, could you please share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to pass on to young ladies that are listening to us on the continent? So I think for, for me, the, the biggest lesson I've learned in the last while is that superwoman isn't real. Superwoman is this myth that um, that, that that was created to to raise our raise our aspirations, which was which was useful, but at the same time, the superwoman myth makes us sometimes feel really guilty that we aren't perfect. So I, I um, there was this book in the early 80s that Helen Gurley Brown wrote called Having It All, and this idea was that we could we really could have it all if we if we simply embraced every opportunity and 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 ran with it, we 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 could have 
and we could have everything we possibly would want, both on the on the home front and on the work front. And I think I think for for women of of my age, that's that's the lesson that we were constantly be, being given as as young feminists, that you need to if you offered an opportunity, you have to take it. And then I was at a talk last year with a, with a fantastic young young woman from Vodacom, 25 years old, and and she and and, and she said to the audience. This is absolute nonsense. You don't. You cannot have it all. Life is all about choices. It's about these trade-offs, and it's about it's about deciding what is it that makes sense sense for you. And I I found that a really aha moment of actually you know we 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 don't we don't do ourselves or other women a favor when we when we perpetuate this superwoman myth that actually everything is possible. Um, we can have everything, but we can't have it all at the same time. I think those are very practical words of advice. And um, thank you so much for, for sharing your time with us on the show today. No, thank you so much for the invitation. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Ingrid Woolard, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Economic and Management Sciences at Stellenbosch University.